Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. Today we welcome my colleague from the History Department, Franz von Lira. He has been teaching at Calvin University since 1999, if I'm right. Is that uh, right? 1998. 1998, yeah. even earlier than I thought. Um, Franz is a specialist in medieval history. He is originally from the Netherlands, and I'm so glad, Franz, you could be with me today to talk a little bit about your fields of interest, well, your you. current projects, and everything else you're working on. It's so, let's start just by maybe giving me a little bit of background about yourself and how you became interested in medieval history. Um, well, that's a, that's a long story. Um, I, I didn't set out to be a, a professor in medieval history uh, when I first went to university, it was my intention to become a pastor, uh-huh. like my father. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, studying theology with all the intentions of becoming a, uh, a minister of the word. Um, but I was fascinated by, by the medieval period and um, the medieval studies uh, department in Groningen at the time was a quite an exciting group. Uh, there was a lot of intellectual stimulation and they Mm -hmm. had great evening series and I started attending those evening lecture series. Um, So I think the other great influence is is a a book that I read, Mm -hmm. uh, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, Mm -hmm. and that got me completely fascinated by the world of libraries, medieval libraries and monks. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to know more and I started to do more lectures in the medieval department and and it grew and grew and grew and um, eventually I did a a second master's degree. Um, Then eventually uh, when I was about to to look um, for for a call in in the church um, there was an exciting project that Mm -hmm. they had in in the medieval department, um, a PhD project that was asking for somebody to do that project, uh-huh. and it was on um, on the study of the interpretation of the Bible in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And there was really one person who had a background in medieval studies and a background in in biblical studies and biblical theology. Yes. So I, I put my career on hold, uh, as I thought, mm-hmm. in order to do a PhD first. Right. Um, during that course of doing the PhD I met my wife yes and uh, she is American yes so we moved to America um, I had to rethink yeah my future and my career so mm-hmm. eventually it became a career in higher education mm-hmm. and especially in medieval history teaching and, and research and all that goes along ex- with exactly. that exactly yes yeah. and that's how we got to be at Calvin so so your interest in medieval studies has focused a lot on the Bible and biblical exegesis, is that correct? Uh, that's right, yeah. I, uh, that's, that's my main specialty, is mm-hmm. the interpretation, the history of interpretation of the Bible mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages. And, and looking that. at that from the perspective of Christianity or Judaism or kind of bringing things together? Well, in, in the interesting thing about the, the, the study of the Bible in the Middle Ages is that there was, especially starting in the 12th century, um, a group of medieval scholars that had an, a lively interest in Old Testament exegesis, mm-hmm. and um, they really wanted to to get to the core of what the Old Testament meant. And they thought, well, you have to know Hebrew. Uh, right. Of course, everything was in Latin uh, at the time, and the mm-hmm. Bible 
was in Latin, but there were so many difficulties in the interpretation of the Latin Bible that the only way they could solve those problems was, um, well, there were no Hebrew dictionaries or grammar, so you had to knock on the door of, of the synagogue yes. and ask the local rabbi, mm-hmm. so what does it say in the Hebrew? Mm-hmm. And so there, was, there were lively contacts between Christian and Jewish scholars yeah. at the time, and, and that always has fascinated me as well, how um, in the Middle Ages um, you have, despite the fact that, that Jews were not in a, in a very elegant position in the Middle Ages, but sure. they were still listened to, and there were contacts between Christians and Jews. Would and you say that those contacts, because I mean, obviously, by the time you get to the 16th century, there's a new wave of going back to the sources, you know, finding the Greek, finding the Hebrew, and so on. Was the medieval period of Jewish Christian interactions, was it actually as strong or perhaps even stronger than how it was then in the 16th century? Well, I think it was different. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when you. <laughs> When you look at the the Renaissance and Reformation scholars, um, by that time you had Hebrew grammars. Yes. You had printed printed books. Uh, you had bilingual books. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, were, there were quite a few more resources that Christians had to learn Hebrew. Yes. So they didn't really need Jews anymore. Yep. Um, which for them was convenient because by that time many of the Jews had been expelled from parts yes. of Europe. Yes. Uh, when you look in the in the medieval period, most of those contacts um, were personal. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could really see Jews and Christians sitting around and mm-hmm. figuring out what does this text mean for you and yep. what does it mean for, for us and uh, getting in touch with each other's traditions as well. Yep. Um, which, quite interesting, is is a, a a tradition that only in the in the last couple of decades uh, we are rediscovering. I was just thinking um, that just sitting around scripture and yep. it's uh, called scriptural reasoning, mm-hmm. uh, uh, saying how do you how do you read this mm-hmm. from your faith tradition? Exactly. Um, so it it led to a lot more interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, dialogue maybe sure um to be honest it's it's not always uh, it wasn't always a comfortable dialogue no. right uh, absolutely and of course when 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 the lion argues with a mouse <laughs> the mouse is not too eager to pursue <laughs> it and see it as dialogue right uh, quite you know who gets eaten at the uh, end. The, the balance of power does come into play for sure exactly yeah so um Tell me a little bit about your most recent scholarly projects. What do you, what are you working on at the moment? Um, right now, I'm uh, I'm still at this in the same uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually going back to the same author that I did my PhD PhD on, and I'm doing a, a critical edition of a commentary he wrote on Isaiah. And that's Andrew of Saint Victor. And that, uh, yeah. the scholar is Andrew of Saint Victor, a 12th mm-hmm. century scholar from Paris, mm-hmm. who was kind of a pioneer in pursuing the, well, as he saw it, the, the Hebrew sense or the, the Hebrew truth behind Old Testament scripture. That must be a quite amazing project to have to do a, a, a critical edition. It's, yeah, well, you have to go back to the, back to the manuscripts and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and a critical edition means that this text has never been edited, has right. never been out in print. Right. Uh, there's only five manuscripts 
that that contain the text. Um, so I have to look in those five manuscripts to see what the author actually intended to say and bring that out in print. And sometimes that's that's quite hard because the, the manuscripts contain a lot of, of scribal errors mm -hmm. and they're not always clear. They might not be complete. Uh, yeah. Many of them are incomplete mm -hmm. and uh, systems are these of punctuation are were different. Are uh, these digitized now? Are they available online? Uh, they're, not, they're not available online, mm -hmm. no. Um, I, but I do have uh, uh, PDF files of those. Nice. And, and so I'm working with PDF files and, and that's really nice because you can enlarge them and uh, and <laughs> try, try to, to decipher, try to what, decipher it <laughs> what it says. Uh, yeah, we all the, know the those challenges. You can't, you can't see everything on no. a on a photograph. No, uh, right. So y there's so much that you can learn from the the physical context of a book. So you you have to go to the libraries. And and two years ago, I I spent the summer in in Paris. Yes. And um, or was it one year ago? No, it was just last year. <laughs> I spent the summer in Paris and I, I looked at two of those manuscripts up close. See, that's an interesting thing because now people think, well, there's so much online, digitized, and so on and so forth. And here you're making the case for still going to the library, going to the archive, seeing the physical object. Yeah, the thing is, of course, digitization is, is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And you have all these, you can have digital copies of these texts. And, and it's fantastic that you can say, oh, this is available only in a manuscript. And now you can go online and very often the yep. manuscript is available digitally mm -hmm. and you can, you can read it. But the thing is, um, there's a lot that you can tell from the, the physical uh, context of the book. Yep. What kind of book is it? Yep. Um, a photograph doesn't capture everything. Yep. Uh, sometimes there are letters in the cracks yep. that you can't read or letters in the margin that you can't read. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing, uh, people say, oh, it's so wonderful. All these texts are available today online, but you still need considerable skills yes. and tools in order to read them. Right? Absolutely. It doesn't mean that uh, <laughs> they're still in ancient handwriting. Yep. And you have to decipher that. Yep. Uh, they still have their own old punctuation systems, their old abbreviation systems. You yep. have to know how to read that as well. Yep. yep. And they're still in, in Latin, so yes, you have to know Latin either. as well. So the other thing I found and I think about in terms of well it's available online. So for instance, I did a lot of work with the registers of the Genevan City Council. And those records are now digitized. You can go on the Genevan archives and there they are one after the other. But I think what you miss when you just do it that way, which is great, right? You save money, you're not traveling, you don't have to, you know, Which get in there. a way is a, maybe That's a shame okay too, too, but, right? it, does but, certain, it, it but saves a lot of money. I think you miss the serendipitous encounter with other items. So for instance, sometimes the items I would get in an archive would come in a box and my item was, you know, the 10th one down. Yeah. But I would look yeah. along the way at numbers one through nine before I got to 10. And you found things that you didn't, no, we're there. That is absolutely true. But you don't true. see that yeah, online. Yeah, that's that's um, absolutely true. You know, you have that to a certain extent also with with books. Yes. Every time I visited a medieval library or a medieval collection, um, I, I always looked. Well, what else is here? Mm -hmm. And and digitization. You know, there's not always money to digitize everything. Yes. So um, I, I would browse a little bit in. Yes. 
the brow's the brow's ability yeah. is just amazing, and then also the contact with local scholars who might have insights that they can share with you if you're there well, in person. That's that's something I'm I'm uh, very that gets very personal because that's how I might met my wife in uh-huh. a medieval <laughs> collection of a, a library in Salamanca. Yes, vital vital <laughs> in that case. That's what we're going to call it. So as you think about um, medieval studies and you're active in the field of medieval studies, you're in touch with colleagues and so on, are there particular trends that you see in the medieval studies world right now, areas of research that are coming to the fore or other areas that are kind of being left aside a bit? Right now, uh, there is a, uh, I think there's a huge transition Mm -hmm. that's happening in the world of medieval scholarship. Mm And uh, it's not always an easy transition. If you read the Chronicle of Higher Education, yep. there's a whole article about medieval scholars fighting Uh-oh. and infighting. Uh-huh. Uh, thankfully, it's all verbal so far. But uh, some of it is nasty, and there have been even threats back really? and forth. And what's well. at the root of it? Um, well, you know, traditionally, the field of medieval scholarship in America, and to a certain extent also certainly Western, Western Europe, the emphasis has been on the, the Northwest, um, France, sure. England mainly, and mm-hmm. the idea is that's where it all happened. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the scholarship of, of Henry Adams in America, uh, Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres is the book that he wrote. Sure. And those are both places in France. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what he emphasized. And lately, people have said, well, this whole field of medieval studies is too too white, Mm -hmm. too male. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people have asked the question, where is the diversity Mm -hmm. in in this field as well? Uh, and of course, there was diversity in the medieval world. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I already talked about the Jewish and Christian sure. diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the greatest diversity in the medieval world was, of course, in the Mediterranean world. So in the last decades, you've mm-hmm. seen an enormous shift of the field of interest from northwestern Europe to to the Mediterranean, sure. especially interactions with um, between Christians and, and Muslims. Yes. And of course, in the Mediterranean, there always has been also more racial diversity sure. in, in the, the, the picture as well. Mm-hmm. Now, other scholars have argued that there was more racial diversity in the medieval world mm-hmm. than people have take, given the medievals credit for. Sure. Or than scholars have have appreciated. Right. And um, so there's especially a group of younger scholars who have um, levied a criticism against the the older group saying, you know, you are not more, you're not sufficient interested in in racial diversity. You're not providing the fully orbed picture maybe of the medieval world. Or even, you know, it's too white and too male. Does that stretch um, to interest in uh, the medieval world beyond Europe? In other words, people wanting to think about medieval Africa or medieval Asia? Certainly, or, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think, you know, the, the interest is shifting not just from northwestern Europe, but also to the Mediterranean and beyond mm-hmm. and looking mm-hmm. at 
travels to China and and Africa yes. as well. Yeah. And um, now, I must say that 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 always has been somewhat of a uh, an interest in medieval studies mm -hmm. all along. Uh, but it, it it was always a little bit more marginal, and yes. now it's become more um, to the center of, I th of attention. I think that's the and same actually in early modern studies, right? That there's a lot of interest, not just in what's going on in Europe, but also what's going on in the, quote, new world. Yeah. Um, what's going on in Africa, what's going on in Asia. And I think in some ways it's healthy, but it, it also does sometimes cause tensions within well, the field. Well, the, the tensions mm -hmm. in, in the medieval field were exacerbated for the fact that there was a, a, a group of... of younger scholars mm -hmm. and uh, some scholars of, of color as well who mm -hmm. um, who really uh, levied it as a you know sometimes the criticism could get very very personal mm -hmm. and then um, a couple of scholars reacted in very personal ways as well so it yeah. got contentious yeah. uh, very quickly which is not really helpful uh, no 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 and certainly when you look at if you look at the, the history of medieval scholarship, um, you could say, well, it has been, there has not been much attention to racial diversity, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which maybe also is, you know, people always say, well, there wasn't m much racial diversity in medieval Europe. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the critic, critics say, no, that's not true. Sure. But certainly, when you look at the... The gender balance. Yes, um, I think that there always has been uh, great attention in medieval scholarship to the role of of women. Absolutely, and there also has been a lively interest in um, in queer studies right. in the medieval field yep. as well. Yep. So certainly the the objection that it is all uh, too male yes. oriented I doesn't don't really think hold. That's, no. that's, that doesn't really hold yeah. for the medieval well, it's, field. It's it's really fascinating to see. I think a lot of our students sometimes don't think about historiography. They, they think about the topic, but they don't really think about how the topic has been taught or s researched and so on. And this, I think, is so helpful, especially for people doing work in history and their early stages, start thinking more about yeah. this field is a, is a construct. Yeah. And, and let's it's, think about how it's been put together. Well, it's quite interesting when you, you know, when you, people generally think when they think of concept as patriarchy mm -hmm. that uh, you know that that ran rampant in mm -hmm. the middle ages mm -hmm. uh, in fact when you look more in detail at the medieval world um, you see communities of women and yes. especially nuns who are you know escaping the grip of the patriarchy yes. and they are doing pretty much what they want to do yeah um, yep. and so you you can see a very a lot more diversity in this medieval yep. uh, in the medieval world than, than, than people assume there was. I think that's one like of the misunderstandings first. about See, the See, I was wondering about that, misunderstandings. I mean, the Middle Ages, popularly, is very um, exciting for people. I mean, people always want to know more about the Middle Ages and so on, but their their ideas about what the Middle Ages were like and the reality are sometimes quite, quite different. Um, apart from the one you've just mentioned, this misunderstanding about the diversity of the medieval world, are there other misunderstandings you think that people really have when they think about the Middle Ages in popular mind? Well, sometimes I think the Middle Ages is kind of the uh, the whatever you wish it to be. Mm -hmm. Lots of 
fantasies that, uh, are projected onto the Middle Ages as yep. well. Yep. And some of those are do have some roots in the Middle Ages, and sometimes it's uh, it's more fantasy than <laughs> uh, than actual history. Yes, uh, I talked. I gave the example of of patriarchy. Yep. Um, you know where you can say there's a lot more diversity than people give them credit for. But mm -hmm. you know, here's I think I think the question of race again is is very important here mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. uh, lots of white supremacy groups have. Yes looked at the Middle Ages and said, well, you know, here we have the, the pure white world. Mm. And even the word Anglo-Saxon, right. uh, you know, it, it was just one of the groups that you could encounter in medieval England. Yep. But it, it has become, it has taken on a different it's meaning. It's taken a loaded term, uh, right? It's yep. a loaded term. Mm -hmm. So, and certainly uh, I think it, it's important to show groups who latch onto um, a white medieval ideal for the right. white supremacist vision to say that's not the way it was that's right. that's not that's not true and i uh, think as historians as part of what we do is actually make things more complicated absolutely. than people might yeah. like yeah. right yeah. so Debunking the crusades myths, things like uh, that that's yeah. a big area where it's there's certain popular ideas about something like the crusades which are really not all that accurate in fact um, i think one of the the main i think that's even the case more so than in in with other fields yes. in there's a lot of myths that people pursue about the middle ages and one of the functions of a medieval historian is to debunk yes. those myths yeah not that it has much effect because no, but as a as a myth debunker, it's a little bit like a like a zombie hunter, right? You <laughs> you can shoot the ghosts all that you want, but they they keep popping up. They and pop up somewhere they, else. They are still alive. I, yeah. I think that's true, but I mean, even if you look at how people in the 16th century thought about the Middle Ages, already there you have some misunderstandings and changings of, of, of narrative because it suited the folks in the 16th century to say oh, that the Middle the Ages was the bad period and now the we're in the good period. The, the um, negative image yeah. about the Middle Ages was mainly created yeah. in the 16th century as a, as a rhetorical device. It was Absolutely. very helpful to yeah. them, right? Yeah. So look back to the pure early church and then we are restoring the pure early church. In between, it's all this corruption. You know, It's a very handy narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the cause and, of the Reformation. You know, it, it comes up at, uh, uh, in, in very practical ways when mm -hmm. you look at uh, medieval movies like, you know, or series like mm -hmm. Game of Thrones sure. or, uh, or the Vikings, mm -hmm. where you have actors of color who play roles, and then some people say, oh, but there weren't, <laughs> there weren't uh, Asian people in or black people in the Viking world. Right. And uh, actually, you know, archaeological evidence is is showing more and more surprising results there. Yeah, the blend of and populations, which could come in all sorts of ways, right? Through yeah, yeah. practices of population movements that are maybe not very well known. And are really Vikings were trading with medieval Spain. Exactly. Where, of course, you had people of all races coming together. Mm -hmm. And through slave raiding, yep. and it was actually... Uh, quite easy from from being a slave in the medieval uh, in the in the viking world to 
fight your own way towards freedom and yep. become an become an earl. So So there you go. You get that that blend coming through. So and of course there is there's now also research that shows that viking warriors certainly not were all male. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were probably there were probably some female viking warriors as well. <laughs> so lots of subjects for research. No question about Absolutely, that. Yeah. So if you were if you're talking to someone say uh, uh, someone who's just finished their undergraduate or finishing their undergraduate degree and they thought, you know, I'd really like to go on in medieval studies. Would you have recommendations for them in terms of preparation or skills that they should really focus on developing? Well, it's always hard because, um, of course, it, it, uh, when you look at actual jobs and teaching in the field, mm-hmm. uh, there isn't that much of a, of a career mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always cautious, but I always say to people also, go where your passion leads you. If you are really excited about yep. this field, you know, learning is never a bad thing. Yep. And uh, you acquire learning and insight. Mm-hmm. And later on, sometimes you can see how you can best apply that. Yep. Right. Sometimes my career perspective didn't come out the way I sure. envisioned it when I was 20 either. Mm-hmm. So sometimes doors open and... Um, and what you acquire by way of learning, and mm-hmm. if you are led by your passion, uh, that's never a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That's something that always will benefit you. I mean, when I look at people going on in Reformation studies, one of the things I always speak to them about is the importance of knowing more than just English. Because if you want to go Absolutely. on in your yeah. research, and, and it's I think particularly in a North American context, that that need for other languages is sometimes hard to convince people of the importance of that. Well, we just talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. With now that there are so many sources available in early modern and medieval books that can be read, but Mm -hmm. still the question is who can read them even though they are available, Mm -hmm. right? You have to know the language, you have Mm -hmm. to know the skills. Mm -hmm. So I think the skills of... um, knowing about ancient books and codicology, uh, reading ancient script and paleography, mm-hmm. uh, knowing languages, uh, Latin, yep. but also French and German. Yep. Uh, those skills are, are more needed than ever. I think that's um, right. Because we are sitting on all these riches. Yes. Um, and, you know, even if they're available online and nobody can read them, uh, we're no much further than we were before. Absolutely. I agree with you totally. Um, so something like the Meter Center, which serves as a special collection, what role would something like the Meter Center have going forward, do you think, in the field? I mean, we do Reformation more than medieval, but you can still think about that as a maybe an example. How, what would the role of the Meter Center be in an in a increasingly digital world, do you think? Well... Of course, the books still need to be somewhere and yes. need to be preserved somewhere yep. in a responsible way mm-hmm. um, because the the digital, what is digitized is not lasting forever. Yep. Uh, sometimes books outlast their, uh, yep. their digitized forms mm-hmm. um, and, and you would hope that they would. And the other thing is that in, in teaching the interpretive skills, mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a real need there as well and a place like the meter center um, can be a place where uh, such interpretive skills can be can be taught yes and can be can be practiced yep 
And, and I think it's also very important as a place where scholars can come together to hone those skills mm -hmm. and to, um, to compare each other's findings as well. Yes. So it's a, it's a place where scholars can meet. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a center of learning. Yes. Um, and you can only do that online to a certain extent. Absolutely. Well, Franz, thank you so much. It's been a joy to talk with you. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. It was you. my pleasure. <laughs>